Amen. Why don't you turn your Bibles to James chapter 1 with us this evening. We'll start there. Uh, I want to talk to you about doing the word. James chapter 1 verse 21. Uh, and uh, let me give you some background on the, on the book of James and James himself. Uh, James, this James was not one of the 12 that authored this book. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, we don't have any information about him, although he's uh, uh, referred to in uh, one of the incidents in Jesus' ministry where he was on the outside with Mary and, uh, and Jesus' other half-sisters. Uh, we don't know exactly how many there were, but there were other children in the family. And um, uh, as a result, they did, or, well, the, the story tells us about how that they did not believe in Jesus. They were calling him and, and telling him to come out and talk to them. And Jesus looked around and said, the ones that are following me and the ones that believe in the word that I preach, that's my family. And, uh, and uh, uh, church history, uh, we don't know how accurate it is. Maybe it's tradition. We don't know for sure. But uh, the story goes that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared in a vision to James, his half-brother. And as a result of that vision, James got saved and recognized that he was alive and uh, was who he had claimed to be during his earthly ministry and so forth. And James was tagged as uh, uh, selected, be a better way to say it, by the Lord as, um, uh, or by the Holy Ghost to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, you may remember that the pastor of the church in Jerusalem or the leader of the church in Jerusalem starts off as Peter. But by the time you get over to Acts chapter 15, when the council, the great council takes place, where they decide what, uh, what part of the law of Moses or what part of Jewish tradition are we going to impose upon the Gentiles, uh, they determined uh, not to do anything except to recommend that they not um, uh, eat animals that were strangled in their own blood and, and that kind of thing, and that they encouraged them to give to the poor. Well, the Bible says that the way that that council took, a, took place was that, that uh, Peter had his say and um, Paul had his say, uh, reporting what, how God had used them, Peter among the Jews, Paul among the Gentiles. And then it said that James decided. So somehow along the way, and we don't have any, any details about it, but somewhere along the way, James, by Acts chapter 15, has become the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Well, the church at Jerusalem was primarily a, Gen, um, uh, a Jewish church. And so when James writes, he's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad. Uh, church history tells us, that, uh, that the book of James was the first of the, of the New Testament books or letters that were written. And so James is writing some things, and he says a lot of things from a Jewish context, not a, not a non-Christian context, but from a pastor of a Jewish church primarily, uh, that, uh, that creates problems for some folks. Now, with that in mind, notice he says in James chapter 1 and verse 21, James says, by the Holy Ghost, he said, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. I think this t gets the prize for the worst translation into the English language of any phrase in the, in the New Testament. Because uh, you take it apart for the meanings of the word and, and, and waste a lot of time. Let's just agree that it means lay apart the things of this world and of the desires of the flesh. That's not specifically or literally the translation, but it's a better summary than... King James came up with, King James translators came up with. So he says, lay apart the, um, the things of this world and the things of the flesh and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now the saving of the soul, he's writing to Christians, so that's a, uh, a confusing statement to some people because many people, most Christians, think that if you're born again, then your soul is saved. Well, specifically, James is dividing between spirit and soul and body. 
So when he says to Christians whose spirits have been recreated in the image of Jesus, born again, he's saying that their souls are not yet saved. Same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 12 about the renewing of the mind. Wouldn't it be nice if when you got saved, your thoughts changed automatically? Wouldn't it be nice if when you got saved, the desires of your body also became, all, all of a sudden became spiritual desires? But you know as well as I do, that's not the way it works. That's why the Bible says we're supposed to do something with our bodies, presented a living sacrifice unto God, and literally let it be dominated by the Word of God, what the Word of God says to do. And then the Bible also tells us to do something with our minds or our souls, which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. He says, do something about it. Paul said to renew our mind. James said to receive the word, which is able to save our souls. So let's paraphrase that and say it this way for better understanding. He said, lay apart all the distractions of the world, whether they're they're the circumstances of life or whether they're the desires of your flesh, and receive with meekness. Be teachable. That's what meek means. It means to be teachable. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now, he didn't say listen to tapes. Nothing wrong with listening to tapes. I do it all the time. But that's not what it, all he's talking about. He's saying receive with meekness the engrafted word. In other words, he's saying let the word become a part of your spirit. You can listen to tapes so Jesus comes back and not get anything from it if you don't receive what's being said from the word of God. So in other words, he's saying let the, spirit, or let the word of God become a part of your spirit because that will change your thinking. That will save your souls. And that's exactly what, you, what Paul was talking about. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To what? Renew your mind to the truth of the word. Renew your mind to the truth of the word. But Now, James is not finished talking. To talk about the renewing of the mind is a great and wonderful thing. But James is not finished talking. And notice what he says in verse 22. He said, but. Now, but means don't just think that renewing your mind is all there is to it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, as I said, the book of James is, is a little difficult because it's kind of written from a Jewish perspective. Now, the perspective of, the Ju- of Judaism in the church, uh, you know as well as I do that the first several thousand people that were saved in Jerusalem when Jesus was raised from the dead, as recorded in the book of Acts, those were Jews, not Gentiles. They start off with an 8,120-plus member church in just a matter of a few weeks, and all of them are Jews. Well, if their minds aren't renewed to the word, and they're not because they don't have the word yet to renew their minds to, all they know of is the new birth. All they know of is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, what yet, what in the beginning, what were they to renew their minds to? They don't have the Bible like you do. What are they going to renew their minds to? I would submit to you folks that the first generation of the church had a real tough time, even though God overlooked some things, even though he worked in mighty signs and wonders among them to bring people into Jesus, into into the family of God and to Jesus, I would submit to you that the renewing of the mind was a very slow and long process because the word of God hadn't yet even been delivered. It was only after the letters were given to the church that they had something to renew their minds to. Beyond that, the only thing they had were sermons that were preached at the inspiration of the Holy Ghost at the spur of the moment. And you know as well as I do that those things are kind of tough to hold on to past the instant that they occur they're not having handout sheets in the church services there's no recording to go back and listen to again first generation spiritual development was pretty tough 
they had a much, much, they were at a great, much greater disadvantage than you and I who have the written word of God. We need to appreciate what we have and where we live. Amen? But again, James writing it from the perspective of a pastor, as the pastor of Jewish Christians whose minds are not renewed to the word, who are used to doing the same things as Christians that they used to do as Jews, children of Israel, they're still involved in temple worship. They're still involved in keeping the law of Moses. And you can't blame them for it. I mean, it would be one thing if somebody said today, well, I'm going to give up on this Christianity stuff and go back to the law of Moses. That's about as stupid as you can get. But how could you blame these guys for saying, well, wow, we're so glad Jesus made us new and now we're filled with the Holy Ghost, but we still need to keep the law of Moses. How can you blame them for thinking that? You can't. And as such, there was a great, 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 great controversy in the body of Christ in the first generation of the church. Now, that controversy is, is it Jesus and the law of Moses or is it Jesus only? Believing in Jesus, what about the law of Moses? What about the worship of the temple? We've grown up with this. We've lived this all of our lives. Are we to turn our back on what we knew that God gave from a, in, a, in a spectacular way to Moses in tables of stone? Are we just to turn our back and give up on those things entirely? You can see how tough that would be. Paul's not the only one, not the only first-generation Christian that had to turn his back on everything he was taught. Every Jewish Christian, every Jewish believer had to turn their back on everything they'd been taught from, the, from a child. Things that God instructed their parents to teach them. So it's not just a simple question. For us, it might be. But it's not, for them, it's not just a simple question. Do we believe in Jesus and or... Do we believe in Jesus instead of the law of Moses or do we believe in Jesus and, add the, and keep the law that God commanded us to keep anyway? Because there is no table of stone that says the Ten Commandments are canceled. There is nobody that went up into the mountain like Moses did and comes down with a new table of stone or tablet of stone saying, forget the other ten, this is the new one. All they've got is the testimony of the 11 apostles that were with Jesus when he was here on the earth. Judas being the 12th and he hanged himself. All they've got is those 11 apostles who were with Jesus day after day after day who said to them, here's what Jesus told us. Now John's the only one that records in the four gospels. John is the only one that records that Jesus said a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Now whether you know that or not, that has the implication that the Ten Commandments have been superseded by the one commandment to love. We get that. But what about them? Not only that, but the Gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. And it was written somewhere around 92 to 95 A.D. Some 60 years after Jesus is raised from the dead. Prior to that, the only thing they have are Matthew, Mark, and Luke that come about progressively over a period of time. It's not like they were written the day after Jesus was raised from the dead, you know. So all they have are the oral testimonies of these apostles. And then later on, they start getting some of these letters at the whole, as the Holy Ghost inspires people to write them. So it's a real issue. So that's the context that James writes in chapter 2. Turn with me over to chapter 2 of James. And notice he starts, we'll start in verse 17. It says, even so faith. Faith. Now, faith was the issue. Faith was Paul's gospel. 
And remember what Paul experienced in his ministry. He went to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles, just like Peter was an apostle to the Jews. He went to the Gentile world and preached faith in Jesus alone. Now, that's an easier job. That's an easier, easier uh, uh, selling job because the, Jew, the Gentiles didn't have any law of Moses to be acquainted with. They may be acquainted with the Jews keeping their own law of Moses, but they don't have anything to unlearn when it comes to the law of Moses. It's not like they have to renew their mind to, oh, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to keep the Sabbath day in the same way now. They had nothing concerning the Sabbath day in their history, unlike the Jews. And now what did the Jews do? Because Paul is preaching faith in Jesus only. They stirred up trouble against him everywhere he went. Why? Because they're still trying to keep the law of Moses. Now, folks, please understand, these are not the unsaved Jews that are stirring up trouble against Paul. These are the Christian Jews that don't want to turn loose of their traditions. They're saved. Some of them may be even filled with the Holy Ghost. Probably most of them were. But they're so steeped in their tradition. Let me say it this way. Their minds are so unrenewed to the truth of God's word and who we are in Christ that they're persecuting Paul. They're doing the same thing to Paul that Paul did before he got saved, which is persecuting the church. Why? Because Paul is preaching faith alone. Not faith plus the law of Moses, not faith plus works, faith alone. So now James teaches faith plus works. This was real tough. Tough not only for the, um, the people of the day that it was written, but it's tough for those that came on afterward. This was the, uh, the issue that Martin Luther had. He hated the book of James. Hated the book of James. Now, Martin Luther was a monk, Catholic monk, who raised uh, questions and objections against the Roman Catholic Church for selling indulgences. Now, the reason that took place is because he, part of his monk duties, whatever that is, is uh, tasked with, uh, with writing out or inscribing or copying, maybe that's a better way to say it, copying the, old, uh, I mean the New Testament scriptures and, uh, and, uh, so that they can be distributed to other churches and other uh, Catholic, uh, I started to say synagogues, that wouldn't be right, um, whatever they call Catholic houses of worship. And in so doing, he came across the scripture in the New Testament that said, the just shall live by faith. Well, the Holy Ghost, over a period of time, the Holy Ghost enlightened him, quickened that verse of Scripture to his, to his understanding, to his spirit. And he came to understand that it's not doing works. It's not penance. It's not paying indulgences. It's not these things that the Catholic Church, in his opinion at least, was instructing and commanding people to do so that they could get in good with God. It's faith alone. And that started a reformation that changed the face of the earth. So he hated the book of James because James doesn't talk about faith alone. He talks about faith plus works. He went so far in one place as to say James is not inspired. The book of James is not inspired by the Holy Ghost. Well, lighten up a little bit there, Martin. Just because you didn't understand what he was getting across or what he was saying doesn't mean it's not inspired by the Holy Ghost. Again, you need to realize Revelation is progressive. We understand a lot more now than Martin Luther did. We understand a lot more about who we are in Christ than maybe some of the apostles did. I'll, I'll leave Paul out of that group. I think he was head and shoulders above the rest of us because of the revelation he received. But revelation is progressive. We should learn more and more about the scripture and who we are 
because the Holy Ghost is always enlightening us to new and greater things. So James writes, verse 17 again, chapter 2, verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Is dead being alone. Now works is the way the translators, King James translators translated this word. And it's not an inaccurate translation. They were exactly right and used an appropriate word. But we think of works, and James is even dealing with people that are, cha- that are uh, defining works as keeping the law of Moses. In Martin Luther's day, works had to do with the commands of the Catholic Church. Well, what does works mean? Well, let's see what James said about it. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Remember, this is the context. The context that we're talking about, at least, is James one twenty-two. but be doers of the word. And not here is only deceiving yourselves. Well, what's doing the word? Faith plus works. So he goes further and says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Separating the two, in other words. Some people will separate the two, James is saying, and claim, Well, you've got faith, but I've got works. The implication is the person saying it is claiming that works is greater than faith. Now, could these works be the keeping the law of Moses? Yeah, they could be. We don't know for sure that that's all that it would mean, but that it would certainly fit the day and the time. So some man may say, you have faith and I have works. I say, James is saying, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, James is saying you should have both, not one or the other. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, remember, James' context here is it's not faith alone, but faith plus works. So he's saying, but some of you will say faith alone is is all that it takes. Well, the devils believe. The devils believe that there's a God, and they tremble about it. That doesn't get them saved, does it? That's the point that he's making. He goes further and says, verse 20, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? he's going to give an example of what works are was not abraham our father justified by works when he had offered isaac his son upon the altar seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect do you see that that's what he's asking do you see that it was necessary for abraham to add works to his faith faith alone wouldn't have gotten it done And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, folks, that's the key scripture. Verse 23. Let me read it again. The point that he's just made is Abraham had to act on what he believed in order for faith to be made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, meaning from this example, we should be able to understand what James is trying to get across. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Here's another example. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Wasn't it necessary for her to act on her faith with works for a result, a benefit to be brought forth? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, folks, there's one translation that I've found that I like on these scriptures. And that's Weymouth's translation. Because instead of saying faith without works is dead, it says 
Don't you know, O vain man, that faith without corresponding actions will not produce results? Faith without corresponding actions. Now, the, the illustration that he uses and the point that he makes is that Abraham's works perfected his faith. And the example, the illustration that he uses, the incidents that he uses, is when God told Abraham to offer Isaac on the altar. You remember the story? Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham, had, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac when he was 100 and she was 90, way past childbearing years. It was a miracle birth. And after this child was born and began to grow up, he's probably in his teenage years, early teen, mid-teens, teenage years, something like that. He knows enough to know what the sacrifice is about. He knows enough to know that they're not taking a sacrifice with them up the mountain on this three-day journey up the mountain to make this sacrifice. He questions his father about it. Abraham says God will provide himself a sacrifice, son. Abraham is taking him up there with every intention of going through the instruction of the, father, of the, of, uh, the Lord to offer Isaac on the altar. Now, God never said kill a boy. He said, offer him as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham do? Abraham offers or uh, obeys God to take him up the mountain. Like I said, he goes three days' journey away from the rest of the company going up into the mountain that God tells him to go to. And this mountain that he goes up into is the place in, in it's what David called Mount Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It's where the Dome of the Rock is now. It's the Temple Mount. It's where Solomon built the temple unto God and the glory of God came down. So Abraham takes him up. And when he, he lays him on the altar, ties him up, binds him just like you would the, a ram or a lamb or anything else they were offering as a sacrifice. And he raises the knife up to go through with, the, with the, uh, the killing or the sacrifice of Isaac. Now please realize that Abraham is offering what looks to be his only means for God's promise to come to pass. This is Isaac. This is the one that God told him. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. And number the, like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. It's through Isaac that it will be fulfilled, which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Meaning like the stars of the sky. So God is doing what appears to be asking, Isaac, asking Abraham to sacrifice the means whereby his promise can be fulfilled. Now, what does Abraham do? Abraham goes through with the instructions and the directions of God. Now, I'm going to turn back to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and read what Paul, by the Holy Ghost, assuming he's the author of the book of Hebrews, says about Abraham when he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Now, I want you to, to look and see if Paul says one word about works. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write Hebrews 11, and the Holy Spirit inspired James to write James, well, the whole book. James identifies Abraham's experience as faith plus works. See how Paul talks about it. Paul said, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac and that he had received the prom he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said then in Isaac shall thy seed be called why did Abraham offer Isaac up as a sacrifice verse 19 tells us accounting 
that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. Now, folks, you need to realize there's some symbolism involved here, and that is this. It says specifically that Abraham left his company behind, everybody, the servants and everybody that came with him, when he and Isaac went up into the mountain for three days. It said they took three days' journey from the rest of the company. Now, here it says he received uh, or uh, accounted that God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead. And as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac had to be raised from the dead because he was the one that God said, through Isaac shall your seed be like the stars in the sky. So Isaac can't, well, I started to say can't die, but he can die. He just can't stay dead. And the Bible says that, that during the time that he was offering or going with Isaac away from the company, which was a three-day period, he counted his son as dead and raised. Does that sound familiar to anything we know of? In other words, Isaac, in this case, was a picture or a type of Jesus. For a three-day period, sacrificed and raised from the dead. Now, in in Abraham's understanding, as far as Abraham accounted things, that's the way that it had to be. If Isaac dies, God's got to raise him up. So what did Abraham do? Since Abraham believed in God's instruction, offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and power to do the impossible, even to to the raising up of his son, he acted on what he believed. And that's why the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Back to James chapter 2. James describes it as faith plus works, but the works are the corresponding actions to what he says that he believes. James' point is simply this. It's not good enough to just make a confession. You've got to live like the confession is true. For example... What if we stood here every Sunday morning and said, well, we believe that if we give, it'll be given unto us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto our bosom, but never gave anything. Is our confession going to bring blessing into our life? Is our confession going to bring material and resources into our life? But we're confessing the word, and the Bible says you can have what you say. But that's a verse of Scripture that we'd have to act on and not just say in order for it to come to pass. That's the point that James is trying to make. It's not good enough just to make a confession. He's not talking about doing the works of Jesus like continuing in the temple worship. He's not talking about doing the works of Jesus like keeping the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses. He's talking about actions that correspond with your faith, living what you say you believe, in other words. That's why he's so tough about this because he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, you can tell what I believe by looking at the way I live. Now, folks, isn't that true for you? Couldn't somebody look at your financial statement and tell that you believe in tithing? You didn't have to preach a sermon on tithing. You could just show them the way you live, show them your giving records. They may have questions. Why do you give so much to the church? Because I believe what the word says about tithing. And then giving offerings on top of that. But wouldn't it be foolish for them to look at your financial statements and for you to say, I believe in tithing if there's no tithing records? Now, there's any number of examples we could use here, but that's the clearest one for me to understand. I think the clearest one to communicate. It's not enough just to say you believe in what the Bible says. Your life should uh, exhibit through your actions, through your behavior, the things that you say you believe, shouldn't it? 
Jesus said you could tell a tree by the fruit that it produces. Some Christians, you can't find any fruit, so you don't know what they believe. That's the point that James is making. Same thing with Rahab the harlot. Wouldn't be enough for Rahab to say, well, we, you know, we, we believe that your God is more powerful than any other because we remember 40 years earlier how that God opened the Red Sea and y'all walked across on dry land. We believe that you're going to take over this city. This city is yours. We don't understand why you guys left 40 years ago. We thought you were going to take us over then, but we know the city's been yours all along because how great your God is. That's basically what she said. It my words, but that's basically the, the, the truth that she communicated. So what did she do? She let them escape. She hid their escape. Now, if she believed in their power to repel Israel, irrespective of the God that opened the Red Sea and brought them across on dry land, there would be no reason for her to let them go. She'd have called the, the neighbors or security force or whoever it is that's in charge, the soldiers of the city or whoever, and captured them. But because she believed that God was greater than whatever gods they served or any other god, she hid them and let them get away. That's what it says that Rahab was justified by her works to let the spies escape. It wouldn't have been enough for her, for her to say, well, yeah, I believe your God's going to do something about it. I believe your God's going to take this city. Her faith was justified by the works that she did to let them get away, and it spared her life and the life of her family. That's the point that James is making. So back to James chapter 1, verse 22 now. What does it mean to be a doer of the word? Notice what James says. James says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only for... If any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now, the glass is a mirror. He's talking about looking at yourself in a mirror. And what do you see when you look at yourself in a mirror? Don't you see who you are and what you look like? That's what mirrors are for. Ask any teenager. To stare at yourself to see how you look. That's the point that James is making here. Being a hearer of the word is like looking at yourself in a mirror. For he beholds himself, sees who he is, and goes his way. Leaves the mirror. Which is hard to get teenagers to do. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Now remember the context that he's talking about is being a doer of the word. The doer of the word is blessed in his deed. He's going to tell us here's what doing the word is like. But, verse 25, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now, what's he saying? He's saying looking into the word of God, which is the perfect law of liberty he's referring to, which he must know is part of what he's writing and adding to. Whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. He's saying the word of God should be like a mirror for us to see ourselves. And continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. Can I ask you how he did the work? He continued in the word. When James says, be a doer of the word and not hearers only, he's talking about continuing in the word. He's saying the same thing that Jesus is talking about when he talks about the sower so in the word. He talks about the four different types of ground. The stony ground, or the wayside, first of all. It's where Satan comes immediately and steals the word. The stony ground is, is that that doesn't have much depth of earth. They don't continue to water the seed. And so it doesn't produce anything. 
seed that's sown among thorns grows up, but it gets choked out by the wrong stuff. All three of those, he's talking about distractions. Distractions that either keep you from receiving the Word of God when you first hear it, or distractions that keep you from attending to the Word of God after you do hear it. He's talking about, atten- he's talking about distractions. He's talking about distractions of life, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things, for example. He's talking about affliction and persecution, things that the devil will use to draw your attention away for one and only one purpose, and that's to keep you from continuing in the Word. Now, how do you continue in the Word? Well, one way to continue in the Word is to speak it. Otherwise, you'll forget who you are. Now, who we are is who we are in Christ. So being a doer of the work is continuing in the knowledge and in the practice of who we are in Christ. Now, remember verse 21? He said, lay aside the distractions of this life and the desires of the flesh and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, he's saying to continue in the word is the key to renewing your mind to the truth. That's what Paul called the renewing of the mind. uh, Renewing the word renew that he used literally means reversal by repetition. He's talking about speaking the word. He's talking about speaking the word. Speaking the word, saying what God's word says, saying who you are in Christ. And that's what he calls doing the word. Are you out there? I know I've gone a long way around the bush, but do you understand what I'm saying? Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. To the degree that he speaks the word of God, he'll be blessed in his deed. That's why he goes into chapter 2 and says, but don't think speaking the word alone is sufficient. You've got to act according to what you say you believe. You've got to act according to your confession. If you really believe it, you'll live it. If you really believe it, you'll live it. Verse 26, he continues in chapter 1. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. Why is he talking about the tongue? He's been talking about the tongue all along. Being a doer of the word has been confessing the word of God. That's the definition of what he's been talking about. He said, if any man bridleth not his tongue, doesn't control his tongue. Well, why in the world would he start a new subject concerning controlling the tongue? He's not starting a new subject. He's been talking about speaking the word of God, controlling your tongue to say the right thing as being the definition of being a doer of the word. Are you with me? Do you understand? This is key. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's simple, but it's huge. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. In other words, he's saying it's in vain to speak the word some of the time and not control your tongue to speak against the word at other times. He's saying this man's religion is vain. He may sound on occasion like he's saying the right thing, but if he doesn't do it consistently, remember he's the one that said in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now he's going to define what being double-minded is. Double-minded is continuing part-time in the word and, and other times speaking something to the contrary. And he said, that won't work. Just like faith without corresponding actions won't work. 
making a confession without living out the confession in your life, that won't work either. It almost sounds like the Holy Ghost wants wants us to understand how to make it work. Are you out there? I'm getting a lot of cow at Newgate looks. Do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? If not, I'll go over it again. As laborious as it may be. The works that James is talking about is living what you say you believe. Being a doer of the work or a doer of the word is to speak God's word. To speak God's word. Now, if Martin Luther understood this, he wouldn't have had a problem with the book of James. He would have said, well, I don't like the way he said it. It'd be nice if the translators, the translators used different terminology. But he's saying exactly the same thing that Paul said. It makes it sound like James did faith. Uh, James is saying Abraham was faith plus works. Where Paul said when he was tried, he, when Abraham was tried, he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. Just like what God said. God, he just obeyed God. One way is certainly, James' way is certainly more offensive to us and harder for us to hear than Paul's way. But they're saying exactly the same thing. Now let me show you an example of this. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse uh, 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship into the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh into the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? But Jesus looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace. Be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came one came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain, which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now, let me stop the story right there and ask you a question. How long did it take for the woman with the issue of blood to get her story out and tell what happened and the whole incident to take place? We read it in a few verses, 10 verses, I think. How long did it take? What I'm trying to get across to you is there's a, uh, a length of time, a distance that they have to travel from wherever Jesus was to Jairus' house. I'm sure Jairus is counting the seconds because if your daughter was at the point of death, you'd want to get there instantly, wouldn't you? If you believe Jesus was your answer, then the key is to get Jesus in front of your daughter before she dies. Now, the reality is they wouldn't have made it anyway. 
because before the woman with the issue of blood finishes or just as she finishes her story, and who knows how long that took. I mean, just for Jesus to find the woman had to take a few minutes at least. Maybe longer. Maybe she was afraid. It says fearing and trembling fell down before him and told him all the truth. Maybe she was really afraid and wouldn't own up to it. And Jesus wouldn't leave until he found out who she was. I don't know how long it took, but folks, it was not bang, bang, bang. However long it took, as soon as she finishes, somebody has come back from Jairus' house saying, too late, she's dead. So it could be that she was dead by the time that Jairus got to Jesus. That's entirely possible. Don't know the distances, so there's no way to confirm it one way or the other, but it's entirely possible. We don't know yet how close they are to his house. There may still be a long way left to go. Now, what is Jesus going to tell Jairus to do? I mean, this is a different thing than he bargained for. Jairus came to Jesus to keep his daughter from dying. Now the report is she's already died. Did Jairus come to Jesus with with, uh, faith to raise his daughter from the dead? We don't have any way to assume that. We don't have anything that he said that would indicate that. For example, Jairus didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please come to my house. My daughter's at the point of death. But even if we don't make it in time, I believe you can raise her from the dead. Now, if he'd said that, then we would, have, we would have something to base our assumptions on. But absent that, which we don't have, we don't know what his faith was other than for her to be healed if he can get Jesus to her in time. Now the news comes, she's already dead. What would you do? Oh, bless God, I'd believe God for her to be raised from the dead. Well, it's easy to believe that after you read the story. But what would you do in the middle of the situation? I don't think any of us can answer that, honestly. We might like like to say of ourselves, here's what we would do, but can we really be sure? I can't. I don't believe any of us can. So what does he do? What does Jesus say to the man? Jesus immediately speaks up, and what does he do? Does he say, well, we need to get to the temple. Forget getting to your house. We need to get to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Brother, what you need to do is say three Hail Marys and whatever else the Catholics tell you to do. I don't even know. What's the work that he tells the father to do? I mean, this is a whole different animal now. This is not healing. This is raising from the dead. We can call healing just healing, but man, at the very least, this is a miracle that you need now. Whole different category. What does Jesus tell the father to do? Jesus, let's read it again. While he yet spake, verse 35, while he yet spake, Jesus is still speaking to the woman. There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus does not give this guy a chance to speak. Jesus speaks immediately before the father can open his mouth. Folks, that's key. Some people say, oh, you faith people make too much of confession. Jesus seemed to think that the words that he's about to say are going to be really important. Well, it wouldn't have mattered. God's in control of all these things. It wouldn't have mattered what the Father said. Jesus is going to perform the will of God no matter what. Then why is Jesus in such a hurry to speak before the Father does? Folks, your words are so important. They're a lot more important than most people give them credit for. 
Your words, the Bible says, your words control and govern your life. Blessed folks are that are so casual with their speech. Thinking that God will just make up the difference. Jesus' actions are very, very telling here to me. As soon as Jesus heard the report about the father's daughter, Jairus' daughter, he jumps in and says, be not afraid, only believe. Then notice what he didn't tell him. He didn't tell him to go to, the, to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. He didn't tell him you better pray. He didn't tell him to make another confession. He didn't say, now we're going to have to change or adjust your faith. You were believing for healing. This is not a matter of healing anymore. We're, let me teach you how to believe for the raising of the dead. He didn't say anything except shut up. Keep your mouth shut. Stay in faith. Now notice what Jesus said staying in faith was. Not speaking anything else other than what he's already said. In other words, he's saying be a doer of the word by continuing in what you believed. Can you see what James is talking about here? Perfect example. And Jesus shows us. Be not afraid, only believe. Notice what Jesus didn't say. You're going to need a different measure of faith. You're going to need more faith. You're going to need a different type of faith. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, be not afraid, only believe. What does that mean? That means God's power is much greater than you thought it was to begin with anyway. That means there's more to God, there's more to Jesus and his power than what you ever expected to need. Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. Now, the Father seems to get it because the Bible doesn't tell us that there is any more conversation whatsoever. Verse 37, and he suffered no man to follow him. Now, here's one thing Jesus does is he makes sure the people with the report of the daughter being dead don't stay in touch with the Father. When you're in the middle of a a, uh, crisis situation, you better remove the people that aren't going to talk right around you. Because no matter what you intend, no matter how strong in faith you think you are, you get the wrong people around you, they'll get you saying the wrong things. And he suffered no man to follow him, save or accept Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the ruler of the, the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleeps. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus did not have faith or did not have power on command to where he could operate indiscriminately with. For example, the story that we just read in uh, Mark chapter 5 about the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus was surprised that power went out of him. When she reached in from behind and touched the hem of his garment, Jesus said, uh, the Bible says, that when he felt power or virtue go out of him, he turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now, folks, if Jesus operated on the earth the way that most people think that he did, most Christians think that he did, that he knew everything and was all powerful and everything else, why did he ask who did it? Why didn't he turn around and call the woman by name and said, I've been looking for you. Come on up here. God showed me before I ever started on this journey that you'd be coming. Why did Jesus have to look around to find out who did it? Jesus, the Bible says, laid aside his heavenly power and glory. That means he did not know everything that was going on before it happened. 
It means the power was not his to dictate. If it was his to use indiscriminately whenever he wanted to at his pleasure, why does Mark chapter 6 and verse 5 say that in Nazareth he couldn't do any mighty work? He didn't have any healing signs or miracles. The Bible says the reason he couldn't was, and the reason he marveled was at their unbelief. You know, if you're going to do, want to do good anywhere, it's going to be in your hometown. But the Bible says he couldn't. Now, it doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. That means was unable to do any healing miracle. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He tried to change it by going through the synagogues and teaching. But their unbelief kept him from being able to do any healing miracle. So the power of God, the healing power and miracle working power of God was not his to use indiscriminately unless the Bible's wrong. Well, if that's the case, and if faith is necessary for the power of God to work, even though God wants it to work all the time, if faith is necessary, then that must be the reason why Jesus told the father, Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. In other words, don't say anything to gum up the faith that you've already exercised. Don't say anything to the contrary. Because all that's necessary for the miracle working power, the the power of God that Jairus thought was going to be healing power, now to be raising from the dead power, same power, same God. One works the same as another as far as God's concerned. I know we think of things differently. The only thing that's necessary for him to make that power work is faith. So what does Jesus do? He has to stop the guy from speaking. And he does. So now Jesus, knowing full well that faith has been exercised, that will even raise this girl from the dead, gets in the middle of the crowd and acts on his faith and says, what are you guys crying for? She's just asleep. Now, Look at it. We understand it from Jesus' point of view, but look at it from their point of view. They know the girl is dead. Whether or not they know anything about Jesus, we don't know. We seem uh, there's an indication that they understood. The people in the house understood that he was on his way to see Jesus to come heal his daughter, because that's the report of the two guys or the, the certain however many there were that come from his house saying your daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? They knew why he came. They knew that he went to Jesus and why he came there. Right? Somebody say amen or something. Let me know you're out there. I'm not looking for you to stroke my ego, but let me know that you're understanding what I'm saying. Are you with me? Okay, so from their point of view, she's dead. They saw her die. They witnessed her death. So when Jesus comes in the middle of the crowd and says, what are you making the fuss for? She's not dead. She's just asleep. They know differently. Jesus is operating from God's point of view. The situation is not too hard for the power of God. They're operating from a natural standpoint. You've got to be kidding. She's dead. That would be nice if somebody spoke up and said, well, Jesus, we've heard about you doing miracles. Are you about to do one now? But we don't have record of that either. So what did Jesus do? It says they laughed him to scorn, verse 40. But when he had put them all out, please notice Jesus didn't try to fix them. 
He didn't preach a sermon. He just showed them the door. Folks, that's what you have to do when people won't believe. Don't try to make them believe. Just show them the door. You don't have to try to justify your faith. You don't have to try to explain what you're believing or why. Just show them the door. In other words, separate yourself from those that won't believe with you. Now, if there's only one lesson you get from this, please learn that one. In the middle of a crisis, you cannot afford people that won't believe with you. So when he put them all out, then he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. Has anybody said anything yet? Not a word. Now, I don't know if this is the entirety of the story or not. I don't know if the mother started trying to speak. We don't know. But we would have to assume if she did try to speak, either Jairus or Jesus stopped her. Shh. So then Jesus took the damsel by the hand and said, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked. For she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. Notice there was no lightning flash. There's no thunder from heaven. There's no voice from God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I invested all my power and all my glory. Took her by the hand and said, arise. And she did. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded them that they should give, that she should be given something to eat. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that was Jesus. And oh, if we could only get to where Jesus was here on the earth, if we had only been in, in that time, that day and that time. Folks, I got something to tell you, and I mean this with all sincerity. That would have been one of the worst times to live in. Because the chances of you finding out what you already know, not including what you have yet to learn, but what you already know about who we are in Christ and the power and the authority that belongs to us, because Jesus has risen from the dead, the chances of you learning that in that day, in those days, is slim to none. You live in a better day. And that presupposes that Jesus was different, operated differently when he was here on the earth to to watch over the word of God and to perform the word of God then than he is now. Is that true? Did Jesus watch over his word more when he was here on the earth than he does watch over his word today? Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. I sure didn't expect this service to go this way. Sometimes it's nice to be surprised though. Let's start in verse, uh, let's back up into chapter 2. Let's start in verse 14. For as much then, Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now the death he's talking about is not just Jesus hanging on the cross, but spiritual death. That's what destroyed the devil's power, not Jesus' body being broken. And deliver them, verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
That's who we were in Adam. We had a fear of death because we couldn't escape it. And therefore we were in bondage to it. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, his earthly form was not angelic. His earthly form was just a normal Jew. Israelite. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he tempted, he himself having suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor or aid or relieve them that are tempted. Now those verses we just read in chapter 2 are very simply saying, Jesus experienced everything in the flesh that you will ever experience and more. And because of that, it enables him to be a faithful high priest. Faithful means he's diligent in his duties. What does a high priest do? High priest ministers between God and man. He ministers on behalf of man unto God and on behalf of God unto man. He's the go-between, the mediator, the, the one in between. So he's merciful and he's faithful. He's a merciful and faithful high priest, faithful to uh, carry out all the duties between God and man that he's given to do, and merciful, not full of justice, but merciful. For in that, he himself having suffered was tempted, he is able to aid or relieve them that are tempted. Chapter 3, wherefore? Because he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider... Understand, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, it just said that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. What is the, the faithful high priest over? What you say. How does he minister to God on your behalf? Through what you say. That's what the word profession means. It's the word translated confession other places in the New Testament. He's a merciful and faithful high priest of your confession in other words it's saying that jesus watches over the word of god that comes out of your mouth today just like he did when jairus spoke in mark chapter 5 he hasn't lost one bit of his overseeing power he still deals with the words that you speak on your behalf unto god today like he did when jairus has said when Jairus said to Jesus, come lay your hands on my daughter that she may live and not die. Thank God we have a merciful and faithful high priest. That means every word. Now, this is the scary part. Every word that comes out of your mouth is what Jesus has to work with. If you speak the word only, that's good news. If you don't, then as James said, you're not being a doer. You're being a hearer of the word and you're deceiving yourself. We've got a lot of Christians that are self-deceived. They're deceived to not know or to be kept from knowing the importance of their words. The devil's been real good about deceiving the church on that point. Wouldn't you agree? But thank God when we speak the word. When we speak the word, Jesus takes that word directly to the Father who's sitting just to his left. He says, did you hear that, Dad? Did you hear what they said now? Well, it's right there in the Word. It's theirs. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've made such a mistake. 
That's why it's important to know that he's a merciful high priest. You know, you only need mercy when you miss it. You don't need mercy when you're standing in right ground because of your own actions. When you need mercy is when you've messed up. Thank God he's merciful. Because I've certainly messed up enough, more than my share, but he's always been merciful. What is being a doer of the word? Saying what God's word says. And the doer is blessed in his deed. The doer is blessed to the degree that he speaks the word of God and lives accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be doers of the word. Thank you, Lord, that the words that we speak come to pass in our lives because our words carry power. You designed it that way. So let's make a confession together. Say this after me. According to the word of God, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I am healed. I am born again, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And the life of God flows through my veins. Furthermore, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. And he quickens my mortal body. Healing is mine. Take this confession, Father, as an offering unto you, as an example of our faith in your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As my high priest, you take this confession to the Father. You watch over the word spoken by my mouth, and you perform it in my life. I say that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I say that Jesus is making it a reality in my body. I say that what I say comes to pass in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's just as important as an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, even more so, really. That's just as spiritual a context as the Day of Atonement sacrifice for Israel. Because you've spoken from your spirit directly to your Heavenly Father. Well, what do we do? Well, we go our way, expecting the Word of God to work. Yeah, but I don't feel any different, Pastor Mike. That's why Jesus said speaking the Word is like planting seed into the ground. The whole kingdom of God is like planting seed in the ground. You plant the seed and it grows. You can't see it growing because it's under the earth. So you go to bed, wake up the next day, no matter what it looks like. You go to sleep and you rise day after day after day, and it produces and you don't even have to know how. Because that's one of the questions the devil always asks me. How's this going to work? You don't even have to know. Jesus watches over his word to perform it. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.